Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What does it mean to be a good citizen? That's maybe a more lively topic than it might seem at first. Because being a good citizen, first of all, could mean a lot of different things. The people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th by and large regarded themselves as good citizens. They thought an election was being stolen. They, they believed maybe the wrong people. But you could argue anyway that their purpose, even though they were achieving it in exactly the wrong way, by violent means, their purpose was maybe civic in nature. I know that's a stretch for some of us. But that's the complexity of the idea of being a good citizen. We're going to explore it from antiquity to the present right after this news. Today we're going to talk about the notion of citizenship, about of being a good citizen. Uh, this obviously uh, isn't a, an America-specific question. Uh, it's something that people have thought about through the ages. We're going to try to think about it that way. Uh, a little bit later in the show, uh, you're going to hear from John Shattuck, co-author of a new book called Holding Together, The Hijacking of American Rights, uh, Rights in America and How to Reclaim Them for Everyone. Uh, and towards the end, you're going to hear one of our favorite and very regular guests, uh, the writer Azar Nafisi. Uh, but we're going to begin talking in terms of philosophy with somebody else who is turning into one of our regular guests, at least if I get my way, uh, and that is Tamar Gendler, uh, a professor of philosophy, psychology, and cognitive science, uh, and the dean uh, of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale University. Uh, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much, Colin. So if you ever wanted to make an argument uh, in favor of studying ancient, sor- ancient sources of philosophy, this would be part of it. They really thought a lot about citizenship. Uh, it's one of the reasons we have occasional revivals of Stoicism and Neo-Aristotelians and, and things like that. But I don't want to prejudice you in favor of them. If I say to you, Tamar Gendler, what does it mean to be a good citizen? What does philosophy tell us about that? Where does your mind go or where on your bookshelves does your hand go to start 
thinking again about that question? It's a, it's a great question. And I would say the, the first thing a philosopher does when they're presented with a complex concept like good citizenship is, is to try to figure out what the pieces of it are. And in the case of good citizenship, there's two notions at play. One is the idea of what is it to be a citizen, which in an abstract sense is to be a member of a community. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means. And then the second question is, by virtue of what are you a good member of a community as opposed to a non-good member of a community? The philosophical tradition tends to look at citizenship in terms of two complementary notions. One of them is the notion of rights, which you're going to be talking about a lot later in the show. And the other is the notion of responsibilities. And rights are things like permissions and privileges, which social structures make it possible for you to exercise and enjoy. And responsibilities are the expectations that are made back of you in response to your rights that are associated with you agreeing to behave in particular ways. So let me stop with that and see whether that's a direction that you want to keep going Otherwise, we can talk about the social contract tradition, which is one of the ways of of thinking about the relation between rights on the one hand and responsibilities on the other. Well, I I would like to do all of those things. Sound very appealing to me. But but, well, let me just take it in a direction and just see see what you say about it. There does seem to be um, a, a way of thinking that you can see stretching at minimum from Aristotle to Hegel and, and maybe beyond that to, to Tocqueville and Robert Bella and his, his collaborators, that the notion of citizenship uh, and justice exist as a that, – that's sort of a parallel category to ideas of love and friendship, that the idea of a healthy person within a society who's capable of making the bonds of affection with other citizens is going to function better as a citizen in those other categories like cititizenship and justice. I mean that – I mean, Aristotle, I think, tends to be kind of holistic about things. Like if you're screwed up in one way, you're probably not not going to get some of this other stuff all that well. Yeah. And and that's an interesting feature about Aristotle is the, the thought that it's hard to compartmentalize virtues. The, the notion of uh, citizenship that Aristotle is picking up can actually be seen in his predecessor and teacher, who was a philosopher named Plato. And Plato has a wonderful dialogue called the Crito, uh, which all of Plato's philosophical works are written in the form basically of plays. Think of it as being like the Shakespeare of ancient Greece. So everybody's in a play and he has a play called the Crito where there's a question of whether you there's a there's a citizen who's been condemned to death. And there's the question of whether he has to accept that penalty. That is whether he has the responsibility of accepting the penalty which the society has put on him. And the argument that Socrates makes back is that basically there's an implicit contract that you enter into when you decide to participate in a city as a citizen. And you get this exchange. So 
the state recognizes marriage and thereby promotes stability between individuals who are involved in the raising of children. And this individual has the state to thank for the structure of education that he was provided and for the laws that allow there to be possession of objects over time. And the reason he's had a home to live in is because the state has enforced certain rules of property. So the picture is that there's an implicit contract which is made between the individual and the state. The individual gives up certain rights and takes on certain responsibilities in exchange for the social structures which the state provides. But you're exactly right that those are in some sense unnatural structures. The state doesn't need to intervene to create bonds of kinship and family. Those are what you get naturally. And what it is to be a society is in some sense to try to extend the bonds of kinship and family, which involve love and caring, to a group of individuals whom you need to treat respectfully without the emotional connection. And so I think that's a way of thinking about the Aristotelian insight, that it's easier when you feel a sense of commonality. And we can talk about how societies try to create a sense of common identity in some ways as a surrogate for what it is that interpersonal relations in a family guarantee. You know, Tamar, it strikes me as another th- another bond or another kind of um, umbilical connection that's hard to sever is the one between what it means to be a citizen and what kind of state are you living in. Um, mm-hmm. And and as I my my feeble understanding of Aristotle suggests to me that. Aristotle would probably be a little bit more comfortable maybe with something like the the socialist democracies of Scandinavia than kind of zero-sum capitalist systems that that embrace the notion of winners and losers. Like if you talk, I talk, I interviewed the <laughs> education minister of Finland one time and they were famously successful and I was kind of probing the differences and he said, well, we would be a lot less comfortable with students kind of being, so to speak, left behind. Now, you know, we are not not trying to produce, you know, uh, a kind of a 10% cream at the top of our class to the exclusion of everybody else. And, and I'm thinking in terms of the level of virtue, that would be kind of attractive, more attractive to Aristotle than the idea, well, some people are going to do really well and some people are just going to get screwed. It's sometimes said that societies are engaged in a balance across three societal virtues. One is liberty one is equality, and one is sometimes called fraternity or fellowship. And liberty and equality, basically because the world is governed by physical laws, don't always coincide. Basically, there's bad luck. Somebody who is virtuous could end up being unlucky. Freedom is inevitably going to produce a certain degree of inequality in a society. And how you balance those two virtues in particular, and what role the notion of a cultural identity, which is sometimes called fraternity, plays, is the fundamental question. If you wanted to map societies along a sort of two-dimensional Cartesian plane, you could map the degree to which they guarantee certain sorts of freedoms and the degree to which they guarantee a certain amount of equity. And at a certain point, there does end off 
being a trade-off between them. And you're right that the Scandinavian countries have made one decision about that against a backdrop of a certain social framework that is distinct from at least the free market capitalist version of American rhetoric. Right. It's an interesting question whether that's something that's easy or hard to do in an immigrant society. And you'll notice that there's been a lot of strain on the Scandinavian countries, Sweden in particular, as immigration has increased. How do they balance the needs of a group of individuals who didn't grow up in Sweden with those who did? Right. I mean, Sweden's interesting, too, because I mean, a lot of one one of the places that this question of citizenship and and community belonging has come up is in the current pandemic. Interestingly, you know, Sweden famously adopted this kind of laissez-faire idea. Maybe we'll even kind of go for herd immunity. We're not going to have too many rules. That actually didn't work anywhere near as well as it's been made out to be. But what always intrigued me was uh, last time I checked the statistics, um, Sweden was 50 percent boosted, vaccinated and boosted. The United States is 30% vaccinated and boosted. Mm-hmm. So Sweden, mm-hmm. they, they didn't have to make a lot. You don't have to make quite so many rules if you have some kind of social coherence. If you have trust. So Fareed Zakaria wrote a really interesting book of lessons learned from the pandemic. And the most important conclusion that the book drew is that societies in which there is trust in one another and trust in government did well during the pandemic and societies in which there's distrust in government did badly. So there's a way in which it's to everyone in the society's advantage to live in a well-functioning society. And there your analogy of family and society is a helpful one. It is healthier for you as a human being to live in a well-functioning family. It supports your needs, which all of us have for trusting, loving, secure connections to others. And likewise, in a society, the more trust you have in place, the better a society is able to function. And you can see that in the numbers that you're adducing that contrast Sweden and the U.S. on the vaccinations. Right. So last thing I want to get into um, is, so Tocqueville comes here. Even then, Tocqueville's looking around and he's going, wow, they've got this thing that I would call individualism. I think he's like the mm-hmm. first person to use this term, you know, and, and, he, and he, he says it, it could really come back to bite them at a certain point. And there is a certain thing here in the U.S. where, in fact, we have this kind of anti-Copernicanism about ourselves. We really, each of us does think that he or she is the, <laughs> is the center of the universe. And it's really hard, I think, to have citizenship in a situation where individualism is prized, perhaps even above other possibly competing values. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So John Stuart Mill, who's a philosopher in the 19th century, who's responsible for the notion that we sometimes call utilitarianism, he actually takes it from Bentham, but he popularizes this notion of utilitarianism that moral good is doing the greatest good for the greatest number, has this idea that the way to make a society work is to have individuals' sense of individual success actually be connected to the success of others. That is, you can have it both ways if what it is to be an individual is to desire the thriving of the community. 
So part of what you look for in civic education is how is it that you can, on the one hand, respect this very important distinctive feature that America has done such a beautiful job articulating, be free, be an individual, express yourself, and have that be compatible with the same for many others. And the answer is through the creation of a sense within the self that part of what matters for the thriving of self is the thriving of others. Then individualism and communal well-being become compatible and mutually supportive. Well, that sounds like a wonderful way to do it. I'm not sure that we're there yet. And tomorrow, again, Laura, I'm going to take a break here and uh, thank you once again. We'll have to extend this conversation right from where we're just leaving it off. I think there's a great sequel uh, here. But uh, Professor of Philosophy, Psychology, and Cognitive Science, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale University, and therefore sort of my boss when I'm teaching there. So I hope I didn't make the boss mad. Uh, But uh, we will take a break and we will come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so we've been exploring the question of being a good citizen through the thinkers of antiquity, or at least from Aristotle up through John Stuart Mill. Uh, and now let's sort of look at this present moment. And to do that with us, we're lucky to have John Shattuck, co-author of the new book, Holding Together the Hijacking of Rights in America and How to Reclaim Them for Everyone, professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, senior fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University, and former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. John Shattuck, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. I'm very glad to be joining you. All right. So we've just been talking about Aristotle and John Stuart Mill and lots of other philosophical sources. Let's look at today. When I say to you, what does it mean to be a good citizen today? How do you react? Well, I think today, above all, what it means is uh, getting in the in the fight and participating in democracy. It's a very messy process and no more so than today. It's also a situation that is fraught with uh, difficulties and dangers all around us. I think as we could see the very hearings on the insurrection on the Capitol at, uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. But I'd say above all, the specific thing that people need to do to, to participate is to vote. Uh, voting is uh, in many ways the most important aspect of democracy. It's both a responsibility and a right of citizens. 
but it's not only voting, it's also discussion and debate and negotiation and compromise to resolve political conflicts. Um, there are long American traditions of community discussion and engagement. I mean, if you go back to the days of the frontier and the barn raising ceremonies and activities when people would get together to help each other, helping neighbors, engaging in public service. Um, and democracy, we have to remember, is an alternative to conflict, to violent conflict, to war. Uh, and it's a, a way of resolving conflicts without uh, engaging in violence and oppression. At least that's the theory. But right. today, democracy is in crisis. And I can talk to you more about that. Well, you know, it's interesting talking about the hearings for a second, watching them. I, I didn't know whether to shake my head uh, in sadness over the, the kind of the degradation of the very process that you're describing, uh, the capacity to resolve conflict without violence, the ca capacity to exchange power uh, in, in an orderly fashion, um, or whether to nod my head at all the people, people who might have gone pretty far down the road with President Trump, who at a certain point couldn't go any further. I mean, an awful lot of people decided, I mean, they started calling it Team Normal. But what they really meant was, Team, I can't do this. I am significantly attached to the notion uh, of orderly transitions and the just civil religion of democracy in America, that there are things I cannot do even in the service of my president. I don't know. Should we feel at least a a little bit reassured by that? A little bit. Uh, <laughs> and it depends on how it all works out, of course. Uh, you know, what we've seen over the last uh, year and a half is a, a tremendous amount of voter suppression. Uh, voting rights have been curtailed in 19 states, which have passed 35 new laws that have restricted voting rights. Um, and of course, the worst example of this is trying to steal votes by spreading disinformation about voting fraud, which is what was going on uh, in the 20, with respect to the 2020 election and what uh, former President Trump was doing. And that, of course, led to a violent insurrection to overturn the presidential election. Now, yes, the people who finally said, wait a minute, we can't do this. This is, this, this is a breaking all of the norms of democracy. I think we do need to celebrate that. But there's a, there are a lot of things that need to be put back together again before we can really celebrate. Uh, particularly the capacity to spread disinformation through social media. That's it was the principal way in which um, the uh, voter fraud and the stealing of the election was attempted. Uh, the polarization that results, the, the gridlock that happens, that government doesn't work and it leads to a vicious circle because it doesn't work and people get more and more fed up with it. But I have some good news if you'd like to hear it. it it's from our book which is how do, how do Americans actually feel about these issues in real time? And to find out, we did uh, a lot of polling. We did two big national polls uh, conducted uh, uh, for, the, for, for Harvard and my colleagues and myself and, and uh, others who were involved in this research project by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, one of the best uh, nonpartisan polling organizations. And there were big surprises. Uh, the biggest surprise was that, you know, an overwhelming majorities are fed up with polarization. They they want more discussion. They want to strengthen voting rights. They want more citizen engagement. They want problem solving. They even want some regulations to deal with gun violence, which is, of course, one of the hottest topics today. 
And I think we have a small, small early evidence of some depolarization in the compromise ledger, compromise bill that uh, Senator Murphy and others have, have been involved in to try to develop uh, a bipartisan, uh, limited approach to gun violence. But we have a long way to go. Um, and the polling results that we came up with are, again, uh, very positive. And I think the pandemic had a lot to do with this. Uh, people said that the pandemic events have caused me to think more positively toward Americans of different races or ethnicities than mine, 76%, to think more positively toward neighbors in my community, 76%, uh, to favor automatic voter registration so that people don't need to go through the whole process of registering and then turning around and, and trying to vote as well, 70%. And uh, requiring social media companies to prevent the spread of disinformation, eighty-one percent in our poll uh, agreed with that. So this is this is in this is good news, but we have a very long way to go before we can turn it into real results. Let me ask you this: Is it a mistake to think about voting uh, and even sort of other related aspects of of civic or governmental participation in a vacuum? You know, I mean, I think people have turned Robert Putnam into some kind of bowling expert. I think they forget that his initial research was into um, Italian democracies uh, and and into Italian government, and he found that in areas where there was a kind of civic engagement, uh, people singing more, more people singing in church choirs, more people joining certain kinds of sports leagues, more people doing other things that have no obvious connection to government, that people functioned better as citizens. And, and I, I wonder about that. All those people reporting those, you know, encouraging poll results, ultimately, if they only talk to a few other people and they don't do a non-political community uh, activity, which brings them into contact possibly with people who think differently than they are. I mean, I just wonder whether sort of hiving off voting uh, is is going to work or whether what we need is that more communitarian elasticity. Yeah, we certainly do. And and I think there are many social, political and economic tendencies away from this kind of, as you describe it, communitarian uh, sympathies or engaging uh, with local activities. Um, you know, all the things that people did, you know, signing up for to be Little League coach or singing in a church choir or otherwise engaging with the volunteer fire department or more political things like running for the school board uh, and local office. Uh, these are all absolutely critical parts of the, the social glue, if you will, that holds the society together. And, you know, they're not just voting, to be sure. Now, well, there are a lot of things that are pushing in the opposite direction. I mean, we, you know, this, the, the pace of change and the, the way in which the digital world is increasingly uh, ruling uh, our work uh, and creating dissatisfaction about, among some people who are being put out of work by automation, for example. Anyway, there are many, many tendencies in the society today that are pushing against this community uh, spirit that you speak of. But I think Americans want it at, at, at bottom. And this is the poll that we did was a very broadly demographic representation of America. People really believe that they have a responsibility. This is one of the poll results, a responsibility of everyone to work together to help address our country's problems. That was a 90 percent uh, score in the poll. So there are many, many ways in which I think Americans want more of what 
Robert Putnam talked about. All right. We're going to have to stop there, but that's a good place to stop. John Shattuck, co-author of the new book, Holding Together, The Hijacking of Rights in America and How to Reclaim Them for Everyone. So, yes, we are going to have one final segment here. It'll be with Azar Nafisi, uh, who's been on our show many times. Uh, You know her for her reading Lolita in Tehran, but so many other uh, books as well. John Shattuck, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Let's hope that those polling results turn into realities that, that bear fruit. So we're going to take a little break here, uh, and when we come back, uh, we will talk to Azar Nafisi. So hang here with us. I've already recorded this conversation 24 hours ago, so I happen to know it's a really good conversation. I voted today. I went to vote and best time. It was casual experience. It was really nice. They were really efficient, and there was an unlong line, and it was like 10 minutes in and out. Before we head into our final segment here, thanks especially to Katie Tularski, who's the big boss around here, but she is functioning as technical producer because Kat Pastor is taking some much-deserved time off. This episode was produced by our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Thanks to her as well. Now, we don't like to have too many months go by without talking to Azar Nafisi, and there are so many things we like to talk to her about. She is the author of six books, including Reading Lolita in Tehran. Her newest is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Welcome back to our show. Thank you for having me, Colin. It's a pleasure to be back. I thought maybe an interesting place to start with the question of what does it mean to be a good citizen Well, first of all, you have much more of an international perspective on this. You have thought deeply about what it means to be a good citizen in America, but that's not the only place you've lived. It's not the only experience you've had. But I thought it might be interesting also to have you say, particularly because of the structure of your most recent books, which is a series of letters to your father, how would your father have answered? You might have to tell the listeners a little bit about who your father was, but how would your father, do you think, have answered the question, what does it mean to be a good citizen? Well, you know, I think the first thing that would come to his mind would be that you need to be independent-minded. Mm-hmm. A good citizen, there are two things about a good citizen, and now I'm speaking both on my father's behalf and on my own. (laughs) I'm trying to stick to as much of the truth about him as possible. The point about being a citizen is to do two things. One, to be independent-minded, to not allow prejudices, including your own to cloud your judgment. And the second thing is that uh, we should know that as citizens, we are responsible. Every single day of our lives, we are responsible towards the way this country will go, the direction it will take. You know, these freedoms are not something that were God-given and that would always remain with us. They need to be guarded and nourished and nurtured every single day of your life. I remember um, this quotation from Saul Bellow that I'm paraphrasing. He used to say um, uh, in uh, one of his uh, stories, those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust 
Holocaust? How will they survive the ordeal of freedom? Because freedom is also an ordeal. Freedom means that we are responsible for every single step we take. And that in itself is so difficult to maintain. It is so difficult to maintain an unbiased mind that thinks of the good of the country rather than one's own petty concerns. Uh, so I think that uh, my father would say, be responsible and be independent-minded. Right. We should remind people that your father was mayor of Tehran uh, in the 1960s. So, yeah, as you're speaking, I'm thinking also a little bit of Hannah Arendt. She reminds us in The Human Condition that the word idiot actually comes from a Greek concept uh, that means something very different. I mean, it sort of refers to a life spent in privacy, a life spent committed essentially not to participation in society, but to its opposite, to living simply for oneself within one's own world. And as you're suggesting, that's not really sustainable or at least compatible with the concept of being a good citizen, right? We just can't just live for ourselves. You know, we might try to avoid the world, but the world will intrude. Mm -hmm. Our personal life, the way we lead it, is always in, defined in relationship to the way we relate to others. And so whether we want it or not, we're part of this. And we cannot complain if things go wrong, if we refuse to participate. And especially a good citizen, like a good writer, actually like a good media person, like a good um, reader, has responsibilities as, as a witness. Even when we witness things, the way we react to them will define us. And you are witness to the truth because totalitarian mindsets and within a democracy, we also have totalitarian trends as you witness today. Totalitarian mindsets rely on lies they gain power by lying. And you see it here, and you see it in a totalitarian society like the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so what we need to do is, as opposed to those lies, to search for truth. And that is why I say that you need to be independent-minded, because truth is independent of what we desire or our whims. and. Uh, whoever witnesses the truth and remains silent becomes complicit. It strikes me, these questions that we're talking about right now, they're extraordinarily complex. They're not simple things with easy dichotomous answers in the sense that, for example, a totalitarian society places the needs and goals of the state above the needs and goals of the individual. So in, in a way, we exalt and uphold the idea of democracy being more concerned with, with creating space for the individual and not necessarily placing the state first at all times. The problem here in America, and we see it now, is people have mistaken 
individualism for citizenship. The yes. fact that you want something or you don't want something. You don't want to get vaccinated. You do want to own an AR-15. And that kind of individualism, it's often described as freedom, but it seems to me that freedom's a more complicated idea that ultimately does take into account the needs of people around you. You're so absolutely right. And uh, the fact that uh, one can uh, brazenly think play with other people's lives, you know, in the two examples that you brought, play with people's lives without taking any responsibility for it, it definitely is not individualism. Freedom is always defined in relationship to ourselves, our uh, moral obligations, as well as in relationship to others. We cannot be defined without defining our relationship to the world. And uh, so that kind of freedom is no freedom at all, because it is freedom without responsibility. And it becomes very dangerous. On one hand, assault weapons uh, are okay. I want to use them. I will use them. Or I won't wear a mask uh, because I don't believe in it. On one hand, we say that. On the other hand, we use um, the deadliest form of confrontation, uh, which is embedded in that kind of an argument. So you're right. This is very complex and we cannot just have a yes or no kind of an answer to it. And and it might be important for us to at least mentally acknowledge that some of the people who are acting differently from us and acting maybe even ways that we at times find repugnant often feel as though they're being good citizens. I'm guessing that the majority, maybe the supermajority of the people who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th thought they were being good citizens. They thought the election had been stolen. They thought it was their job to take the results of the election back by force. You know, and, and we can sort of see that over and over again, that almost nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be a bad citizen today. Yes. It's just that the, our, de- our definition just differs pretty radically. I don't, I don't know what we do about that. Yes, our definition differs radically, and part of it is because uh, we are ignorant. (laughs) We're ignorant of words like freedom, what it means, uh, because uh, we have given up on uh, reading and understanding and trying to relate to the foundational ideas that created this democracy. And We all are in our little cocoons, and that is what makes it so dangerous, this polarization. I can understand people feeling differently from me about what a good citizen should be. What is dangerous in a democracy is that we cannot have a serious dialogue about it is that both on the extreme left and extreme right, which are becoming also more mainstream, this polarization is encouraged. While uh, in a serious and dynamic kind of dialogue, we might change our mind, they might change theirs. We don't go in to argue just our point of view, but to also listen. 
And that is what is uh, lacking today, listening to others. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of Yeats, whose second coming poem almost feels like a news bulletin most days, oh. but particularly, you know, that whole notion of the best lack, lack all conviction, while the worst yes. are full of passion and intensity. Absolutely. So that polarization, that's what you're talking about on both the yes. left and the right. That's where the intensity is. And implicitly, then, the best who lack all conviction, that's kind of a description of complacency. That is the whole point. You know, one of the things that struck me when I came back was that when I talked to people about the problems of living in the Islamic Republic, uh, usually people are very sympathetic and they want to know what they can do and all of that. And they act as if these things only happen somewhere else that it can't happen to us. And I usually want to tell these people that when you think it can't happen here, chances are that it's already happening. <laughs> and one sign of this kind of mindset is this complacency, is not, you know, Colin, I am amazed by how many times a month or a week I hear the word, I'm not comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. You know, well, of course you're not comfortable. Life is not merely comfortable. Comfort is part of it, but you need to face reality. And reality is a mixed bag, and some of it is uncomfortable. And those uncomfortable things are very important. The way we face them will determine which direction we and this country will go. So uh, be a little uncomfortable and take the trouble to not just relate to people by dehumanizing them, but relate to people as other individuals who despite the differences have certain things in common with you. Right. I think that's part of the problem is that we've begun to let politics substitute itself for democracy, for citizenship, for notions of civic good and civic obligations. Politics in and of itself has become more important. I mean, theoretically, politics ought to be a means to an end. You organize into different groups with slightly different philosophies and interests. Uh, you pursue office. Uh, you try to get certain things passed. I understand all of that. But it seems as though now politics is the end. You get into your group of, of politically like-minded people. You direct a tremendous amount of animus at the other side. And in some ways, it feels like it's not going much further than that. And we can't stall out as citizens as a merely political society. That is the height of complacency. <laughs> in words, we all say we hate totalitarianism, we hate autocracies and dictatorships. But in action, there is a seduction to that kind of a mindset that you just so eloquently described. There is a seduction to it because it makes things easier for us. If I think that I, I and my group are wearing the white hats and then the others are enemy of the people and they're wearing the black hat and that is how things are and look at the world through that point of view, you don't have to think. 
you don't have to worry anymore. Someone else is taking care of how and why you think. And that is the most dangerous thing that could happen, which is happening right now in this society where uh, we have given up on thinking because as soon as you start thinking, as soon as you go after real knowledge, questions come. And these questions are partly questioning the world, questioning others, but part of it is also questioning yourself. You see this so much in the novel where it offers you a mirror and you look into that mirror and you don't like what you see. It is not always something that is pleasant to you. And you pose yourself as a question mark. That questioning is gone along with complexity, contradiction, paradox, ambiguity, all of these things that make life complex. And unfortunately, we try to simplify it out of existence. So I guess my last question is, and I'm going to suggest an answer inside my my question, is how do we restart those urges, those urges towards complexity, towards paradox, towards the the kind of palpation uh, of contradictory ideas that might exist in the same space? And it seems to me, and I'm relying heavily on your work and your predispositions here, that the arts are one of the places that we could conceivably go. When you were talking before about that idea of I'm not comfortable with this, my mind flashed back a few years ago, we were up in the Berkshires doing a show about the Merchant of Venice. And we were at, at a production up there at this wonderful Shakespeare stage called Shakespeare and Company. And the night before, I had gone to this production of the Merchant of Venice. And none of the incredible discomfort and just blatant, not just prejudice, but real kind of hatred, casual hatred that exists within the script. None of that had been cut out. We weren't spared anything. And there were some women sitting behind me who uh, I'm pretty sure were Jewish, and they were just really just not having it. They just couldn't believe that, that they were there listening to this, and they were very unsettled by it. And the next day, I talked to the actor who was playing Shylock. His name was Jonathan Epstein, and he's also Jewish. And I told him about the women uh, sitting behind me, and he said, well, yes, they're not having it. They shouldn't be having it. That's why we're doing this play. That's why you do a play like this, because then people listen and they're not having it. And, and that's one of the things that art does is it kind of confronts us with these incredibly difficult questions. And I do feel with your work, as Azar, that that's one of the directions you're pointing us in. Go to literature, go to the arts and see that things are not as simple as they are made out to be on Fox News or MSNBC. God, you're so right. (laughs) I mean, you know, I was reminded while you were talking about this issue, I was reminded of James Baldwin talking about artists are here to disturb the peace. (laughs) And uh, sometimes when I'm talking to students at the universities, I tell them, this is why you are here, to be disturbed. If you want to be made comfortable, you're at the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Of course, unfortunately, our um, universities are now taking out humanities and liberal arts. Literature and ideas are not fashionable at the academia today. But you're right. I think that art and literature is a place to go in order to enhance democracy, in order, you know, 
reading or going to theater or listening to songs, uh, going to museums, none of this will make policy, but it will help create the mindset that both makes policy and votes for policymakers. That is the important thing. No democracy can survive without liberal arts and humanities. That is why from the founding of this country to people who fought for their rights, like Frederick Douglass, for example, knowledge of literature was so important to them. You know, novel fiction by nature is democratic because if you look at a great novel, you see that it is composed of diverse voices. Each voice gets an opportunity to define itself and define the others. There are all these voices in relationship to one another. Even the villain gets uh, the opportunity to voice who and what he or she is. Uh, Therefore, no one is left out. A bad novelist, is the one who imposes his voice and his message on others. Reading and arts as a whole make us think and think independently rather than telling us what to do and what not to do. They put us within the experience and let us decide and come to judgment ourselves. You know, what you said about the Merchant of Venice, I had similar experiences, which I wrote about in another book, in Republic of Imagination, uh, with uh, Huckleberry Finn. I was talking to my friends that Huckleberry Finn makes you absolutely uncomfortable with the word, the N-word that it uses. And that is how it should be. If we change that word, like one publisher did, replacing the word with slave, you gentrify the language and you gentrify that immense crime. He, Mark Twain used to say, don't say the lady screamed, bring her on and let her scream. That is what he does. He puts you within the experience of Hulk and Jim, especially Jim, and lets you see how heinous it is, how intolerable it is. If you can't tolerate it in a book, how will you tolerate it in reality? Because the book is giving you the truth about reality. And that is what you need in order to abolish what you hate. We're going to end there. I can't imagine a better place to end. As usual, it has been uh, both a pleasure and profound to speak to you, Azar Nafisi, author of six books, including most recently, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Thanks for taking time to talk to me. Thank you so much. I very much enjoyed our conversation. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Go out and be a good citizen, whatever that means to you.